0: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. If all the international conferences in the world get cancelled, will global output go up or down? I remember putting that question jokingly to a few economists in the early stage of the COVID-19 crisis, back when we were just cancelling meetings and events, not putting all of normal life on hold. The answer we thought was it would reduce global output... But deprived of all that networking and speechifying, the productivity of the participants would surely go up. I thought of that this week because one fixed point in the international calendar that hasn't moved is the date of the spring meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. They've all been happening this week online. And they might turn out to be more important than usual as finance ministers and central bank governors think about how best to help the world economy come out the other side. We're spending most of this week's episode talking about that with the IMF's chief economist, Gita Gopinath. But first, I wanted quickly to bring your attention to one other feature of the economic landscape that hasn't budged, and that's German policymakers' conviction that they are always right. Well, our Europe economy reporter, Catherine Bosley, will tell us more sitting in Zurich. Catherine, many of us looking at the way that Germany's responded to this crisis might have thought that they had seen the light on running budget deficits to support the economy. But they don't see it that way, do they?
1: No, uh, I think uh, quite the contrary. I think many people in the country will see it as a confirmation of their... uh, of their approach, of their frugality, where you essentially, to use the words of the IMF, uh, repair the roof when the sun is shining and then you have uh, reserves for a rainy day.
0: In the piece that you wrote earlier this week, you talked about the sort of, the, it's the black zero policy. It's the, that, that every any, anyone who wants to be a finance minister in Germany basically has to sign up to the idea that you really never run a deficit unless you absolutely have to. Um, but it's, uh, many would say that they've gone beyond uh, just mending the roof, they've sort of refused to invest in things that they maybe should have invested in. See, there's, certainly, that's been the criticism um, for many years from the likes of the IMF, that they actually could be spending more particularly on public investment.
1: That is indeed the case. Uh, the, you know, Germany has lagged other European countries, uh, other advanced economies in public investment. The infrastructure is not what it used to be. The train service is a catastrophe. Uh, wireless internet reception is is very patchy. So there are indeed um, issues which they could have addressed and possibly haven't addressed. And there are definitely economists, including in Germany, who say that this uh, uh, this penny-pinching penny, penny approach has essentially thwarted the economy in the long term by giving it enough Enough infrastructure to actually support economic activity.
0: And it is, I was very struck just looking at the numbers a while ago that their public investment as a share of GDP is even less than the US. And we think of the US as being a great, huge, the most greatest example of a place that doesn't invest enough in its roads and other things. I guess the German response would be and has been, in fact, in the last week or so, that the fact that they were so frugal in the past has now given them the capacity to really open the floodgates when it comes to supporting the economy now. And we worry that countries like Italy, for example, maybe don't have that same capacity.
1: That is exactly right. Uh, the Germany Germans have unveiled some of the biggest uh, fiscal stimulus programs of any advanced econ- economy. And then, of course, there is also the uh, additional pan-European uh, package announced in Brussels last week. Italy obviously has less firepower uh, because its public finances are in a more precarious place, which is exactly why, of course, there are now calls for Um, jointly issued debt um, to help uh, rebuild economies.
0: I mean, if we step back, I guess if you think about six months or nine months ago, when Mario Draghi left the European Central Bank, one of his final salvos was to have, again, a call for looser fiscal policy in the Eurozone, particularly the likes of Germany, who had strong public finances. You know, one way or another, we have got that and indeed active fiscal policy in Europe is helping to supplement uh, what the European Central Bank can do. So I guess uh, we have sort of ended up in the right place, even if we worry that maybe Germans are going to be uh, drawing different lessons from it than maybe others might do.
1: That is exactly right, uh, in the sense that uh, there, there, you know, were calls to spend. Um, there, uh, obviously, there was a big analysis on, on in terms of the fiscal spillovers. Exactly how big they would be from German investment into other countries is a matter of, of debate among economists. But uh, we definitely do have the um, the big. Uh, big spending now. And there are indeed calls in Germany for uh, more spending down the road as part of this uh, new, the Green Deal that, um, you know, that uh, has been proposed by the EU.
0: Well, it's going to be interesting. I just, I can't help thinking there are so many things that will get changed by this crisis, but I can't help thinking we will have this, well, we're having all the same conversations about Germany needing to have looser policy um, for many years to come, despite what we've seen in the last few weeks. Catherine Bosley, thanks very much. Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by Geeta Gopinath, the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund sitting in Washington, D.C. Geeta, you've just produced the fund's new forecast for the global economy this week. Obviously, it's a big change from the last time when you went through that process at the beginning of the year. What I found particularly striking looking at these forecasts was that your baseline scenario for the world was also the most optimistic one. I mean, often with forecasts, you have a, a baseline and then you have how things how might go well or things might go badly. But right now, you're really only looking at how things could go badly. I mean, Stephanie,
2: I think what you can say is that you should be struck by the uncertainty around the forecast more than anything else. Uh, we started constructing this over the last several weeks. And as you know, at the IMF, it's get gets built both bottom up and then top down. So... This is a very elaborate process with 189 member countries. So this estimate reflects that. So now the question is, you know, what kinds of scenarios should we be constructing? And yes, there are some upside risks, and we could see that coming about, especially if we have good positive news on therapies and vaccines. But right now, we do think that most of the risks are to the downside. And so we elaborate on three scenarios where things can get much worse.
0: And some of those alternative scenarios for the global economy involve the return of the virus in countries after lockdown measures potentially have been lifted or or partially lifted in countries, maybe, maybe later in the year. Is that something I wonder that you've thought more and more about as you've been finalising these forecasts?
2: So we, uh, you know, our baseline assumes that uh the pandemic and the containment measures will peak in the second quarter for most countries in the world and then come off gradually in the second half. But clearly, that's not a given. And talking to epidemiologists and public health officials, there's certainly no certainty that will happen. Now, there are some countries where you are seeing containment measures working and there is a flattening of the curve and the number of new cases are coming down. But it's still too early to say, which is why we look into these other scenarios where the containment measures need to go into the second half of this year and even into 2021. And if that happens, then it will be uh, you know, doubling of the, of the downturn, which is from 3%, a negative 3% to negative 6% in 2020, and almost no recovery then in 2021. So it would be much, much worse.
0: And what we're looking at is, of course, already extremely bad. I mean, this new forecast shows a decline in global output greater than any in our lifetimes, and certainly greater than the Global financial crisis. We should remember, that I guess, this week uh, is when you would usually have finance ministers and central bank governors from around the world gathered in Washington for the IMF and the World Bank spring meetings. And in fact, you and I were supposed to be doing this interview in person at the Bloomberg Bureau there. But the meetings are happening virtually. And I was struck, one of our reporters, Rich Miller, wrote this week the world's ability to check the coronavirus contagion and fully recover from the worst recession since the Great Depression. Might depend on what international economic policymakers decide this week, do you agree that there's that much resting on the meetings happening this week and those conversations
2: I think it it really makes a big difference if the international community steps up and and does even more than what they've been doing now. you know there are many uh, advanced economies of the world that have in a lot of stimulus, both fiscal and monetary policy. So, we, the global economy as a whole, we have about $8 trillion of fiscal stimulus, discretionary fiscal stimulus in the system. But it's almost all coming from richer countries and advanced economies. Uh, if you look at emerging markets, developing economies, low income countries, they're in a really much more difficult situation. I mean, if there's a the health crisis, which they have to deal with, uh, you know, with worse health systems and then on the on top of that is a financial crisis with rapid capital outflows if you're a commodity exporter as the commodity price collapse, and you have high levels of debt so their ability to do the, do the kind of spending that's needed at this point given the high debt burdens that they have uh, is a major issue and i think the meetings this time around have you know would be addressing those would would be addressing that particular concern and how countries and how the international community can step up to provide concessional financing, debt
0: relief and aid. There is already what we would normally consider to be a pretty large pot for you to tap into to help countries through this. But when we look at what advanced economies have done, I mean, their governments are having to take much bigger steps, much faster than they might previously had to consider. Are you going to need even more to give emerging economies and developing countries the help they need? If so, how are you going to get it?
2: So, with um, you know, advanced economies, they have put a lot in the system. I think one of these things about this crisis is because of so much of uncertainty. Uh, you know, you have to have the ability to speedily recalibrate what you're what you're going to spend and what even the design of the policies. So again, I think you know to, to tell you what a number for them would be difficult at this point, but. The plus side is that you see monetary policy and fiscal policy now working together in many countries. Uh, in the US, you have uh, you know monetary policy that's providing support that's being backstocked by the Treasury, and you see that in other parts of the world too. So this kind of coordination is absolutely helpful. I mean, interest rates are are still very low in all, many parts of the world. Now, I think for other countries, uh, we've uh, estimated that if you're looking at emerging market and developing economies. They would need about two and a half trillion dollars uh, to deal with their balance of payments needs. And that's not something that they can entirely meet on their own. They have a significant amount of reserves and those would help, but they will need support from the international community here.
0: Well, often you make new policy in moments of crisis. I was at the U.S. Treasury during the Asia financial crisis in the late 90s, and there were some new facilities that came out of that. For example, a new contingent credit line, uh, for countries to get support through liquidity crises without the usual stigma of going to the IMF. Do you think we'll need that kind of innovation uh, or new facility with this crisis? Or is it just about scaling up very quickly what you and the World Bank already have?
2: I think both of it is happening. You need you need uh, innovation here and you need scaling up. You, know, you saw that uh, you know some of the major central banks are extending swap lines to other countries to help with uh, dollar liquidity problems. Uh, at the IMF, you know, we've had close to 100 countries come to us for financing needs. In the last four weeks, I mean, a total of you know, about 100. So it's a very large number coming in a very short I don't think we've had 100 countries come to us before. So this is unprecedented. And then, of course, the speed of which is even more unprecedented. Uh, and uh, what we've had to do is that to meet their uh, needs, uh, we figure that we need to increase their access to access to rapid financing facilities right as opposed to the ones for which there's a long uh, process of review and long drawn program and so we have done so that's one of the major steps we've taken is to increase that access uh, to levels where we think so it's about now 100 billion which we think would be enough uh, given the kinds of demands that we're seeing and then the second piece of course is that we want countries low income countries to be able to do the necessary spending on, on health that's needed in this crisis, you know, kind of medical supplies and so on. And you know, the last thing we want them is that instead of doing that, that they're actually servicing their debt to the IMF. So we are also uh, in the process of providing debt service relief to many countries, and we just did that for 25 low-income countries. Many other facilities have been thought of. This on, on, we're thinking about newer short-term liquidity lines mm-hmm. for countries. That's another piece that would matter, maybe even more for emerging markets. So, there are other kinds of uh, facilities that we are thinking about. And I think it will be important more generally for the, for the, even for other creditors and other international institutions to do the same.
0: Now, I wonder if we could step back to what you might be writing about in your World Economic Outlook in maybe a year or two's time. I mean, one of the debates that the IMF, had highlighted recently, and we've thought about a lot on this programme, is whether the exceptional measures taken during and since the global financial crisis had left governments with enough ammunition to respond to the next crisis. We talked about the lack of policy space, but now we're in that next crisis, of course we didn't know what it was going to look like, and governments in advanced economies have been able to do a lot with monetary and fiscal policy. So do you think we've learned that there was more policy space than we thought? Or is it just that these extraordinary circumstances have kind of created space for governments to undertake a level of spending we wouldn't have previously thought they could do?
2: Well, Stephanie, I think what we were flagging, uh, you know, not so long ago was that, you know, monetary policy cannot be the only game in town. And next time something goes wrong, fiscal policy will have to play a bigger role. I don't think we predicted that that would be even more the case because this time around in terms of targeting the measures and getting it to the right people, fiscal policy really has to play a big role. And that's what we've seen this time around, which is we have seen fiscal policy stepping up in many parts of the world uh, and, uh, and working with monetary policy to have the biggest impact. So, I, so, I, you know, so that is in line with what we had expected. I think a second lesson we should probably learn is the importance of automatic stabilizers, which is countries that have much you know, better built-in automatic stabilizers can respond to these crises much more fastly. Because the speed with which all of this happens, if you don't have the infrastructure in place, you don't have the systems in place to deliver income support to people, then you, know, you have a harder time getting out of the crisis. And so automatic stabilizers, I think, are another big factor.
0: So I guess we should just explain what automatic stabilisers are. That's the bit of fiscal policy that works without governments having to do anything. So if you if you enter a recession, your economy shrinks, your tax revenues automatically go down and your public spending on things like unemployment benefits automatically goes up. That's the automatic stabilisers. But all of the fiscal policy support, at least in advanced economies, has been about trying to prevent there being permanent costs from this shutdown in economies. So preventing companies that are otherwise viable from going bust and stopping people going into unemployment who might otherwise have just been able to stay in work and whose jobs are viable. I mean, at this point, do you think advanced economies have done as much as they can do to minimise that long-term damage from this crisis? How optimistic are you?
2: I think there is a substantial risk in that. You know, this is a crisis that's help, that's affecting Small and medium enterprises, Mm -hmm. along with some of the big ones, uh, and getting to them is much harder. Uh, When you have a deep recession of this kind, it tends to leave scars, you know, in terms of job losses, in terms of firms that go out of business and take much longer to come back. There are going to be issues with, uh, you know, private sector balance sheets, public sector balance sheets. So I think there is a lot to be concerned about here. I mean, another thing I would like to uh, want to flag is that while in the past when there's been a crisis and you have all the stimulus in the system, it is a stimulus, which is you want people to go out and spend, you want firms to invest now, uh, but that's not what the other side of this crisis is, which is the health crisis. And so uh, at the same time, all of this stimulus is in the system, we want people to stay at home and not exactly go out and spend. So it's a very different transmission channel this time around. The hope is that you will keep people with sufficient income so that they can meet their needs, that firms and businesses can stay afloat, that once we get past this period of lockdown, that, uh, that things would, would recover much faster. But, I mean, the economic landscape will look very different once we come out of this lockdown. And I think there's tremendous uncertainty.
0: I wonder, I mean, you're right uh, that this is a different kind of stimulus because a lot of the money being spent isn't. Uh, by definition can't stimulate the economy right now we're not people can't spend it necessarily it can only hen, hold the economy in suspended animation do you think that when the economy does come back and people can go out and spend that we might actually see some inflation finally as a result of all this fiscal spending
2: i think the money that's being handed out though the overall number looks large uh, it's for an individual household. It's a small amount. I think this is more of a sustenance as opposed to having excess uh, f- uh, funding. Now, you know, based on our projections, we are looking at economic activity being below potential for several quarters, and with that, we you know cannot expect to see inflationary pressures um,
0: anytime soon. It's one final subject I wanted to touch on that the IMF has put a lot of more focus on over the last few years, and that's the relationship between inequality and the economy, and the economic damage that comes from inequality, as well as the social damage. I think a lot of those costs have been brought home very dramatically in this crisis. I mean, we've seen such a difference between the situation of people working for large companies or traditional companies, and the situation of people at the fringes of the labour market, for example, who are not only on low incomes, but potentially in the gig economy with no job security and now no income. Do you think we might see a re-evaluation of the role of the state coming out of this and maybe a greater focus on providing rights, providing a safety net for those parts of the workforce that turned out to be so vulnerable to this crisis?
2: I mean, for countries to come out of this really grim situation, and this is true for all countries in the world, it's going to be important to get everybody to be able to survive this crisis and to come out whole at the other end and so you know having this kind of inequality which leads to permanent losses of income people coming out going out of the labor force where they can't maintain basic livelihoods doesn't help anybody it doesn't help it doesn't help even from an just a pure growth perspective so i think absolutely i think it's very important for the world to ensure that there are, again, I would say, automatic systems in place that get triggered whenever something like this happens to ensure that people get the support that they need and also to make sure that in normal times that there is an equitable distribution uh, of income in the world.
0: I'm sorry I said that was the last one, but actually I do have one other question because I realise I'm talking to you and I'm also reading the analysis of our India economist, Abhishek Gupta, about the impact of the lockdown in India. As someone who is very familiar with the Indian economy, I'm just thinking about the kind of lockdown that's now being attempted there, what that means for the economy. Do you feel that there's enough understanding of the implications of that for a country such as India with its enormous slum population and informal economy? Are there enough programmes there to prevent this kind of shutdown being cataclysmic for a big chunk of the Indian population?
2: Well, it is essential to do what we are seeing there, and I think it's, uh, the Indian government was right to uh, to move speedily and put these kinds of lockdowns in place. Uh, you know, you have to make sure that this crisis doesn't spiral out of control. Now, this has unfortunately had a big effect on uh, you know, daily wage workers, and you've seen this with migrant laborers who are going back to the villages. And, you know, this requires, at the same time as you're putting this containment in place, it requires that the government supplies food, uh, you know, transfers in kind, but also cash transfers. And they are are doing uh, several things in this uh, dimension. They are providing uh, relief to a lot of uh, workers, uh, and I expect that they will do more uh, going forward.
0: Gita Gopinath, Chief Economist of the IMF, thank you very much. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID-19 is affecting the global economy. And remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more news and analysis during the week from Bloomberg Economics, you can follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with special thanks to Geeta Gopinath and Catherine Bosley. Scott Landman is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.